Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 140, The Final Recovery. In 1258, a successful general was crowned by the Patriarch as Emperor of Nicaea. At 34, he was young enough to have the chance of reigning for a long time, but old enough to have the experience to reign as well. Michael Paleologus was to become the last great emperor of a once great empire. Some of the emperors who followed would be good or clever or brave, but none would have the success of the man who would regain Constantinople. John IV Lascaris was also crowned, but he was only a small boy. He was blinded a few years later and lived out his life in a monastery. Michael VIII spent almost his entire time on the throne trying to do everything he could to keep hold of his empire. He had to balance building up his army and navy, rebuilding the empire and managing his friends and enemies, and there were a lot of them, mainly enemies. He had to deal with the Venetians, the Genoese, the French, the Sicilian Angevins, the Bulgarians, the Serbians, the Hungarians, the Pope, the Orthodox Church, the Turks, the Epirins and the remaining bits of the Latin Empire. It was as if he was juggling, trying to keep all the balls in the air at the same time, because if he dropped one of them, the whole lot might come crashing down. The fact that he kept all the balls in the air and left a stronger empire to his successors was an amazing feat. Unfortunately, his successors were not good jugglers and they dropped most of them. In 1258, the recovery of Constantinople seemed a long way off. It seemed as if the whole of Greece was against Michael Paleologus. The despotate of Epirus was allied with the Sicilians and William Villarduin, the Latin prince of Achaea, Achaea was a small principality in the place called the Morea, which was the imperial name for the peninsula now called the Peloponnese in southern Greece. Michael sent his brother John with a large army to defeat the Allies. The imperial army was large, but not as large as the Allied army, and it seemed as if John was bound to be defeated. The Allies, though, were not as friendly with each other as they needed to be. Just like a group of little boys arguing about who is next on the Wii, they fell out and started bickering. Pretty soon, only the Sicilians and William of Achaea were left. John Paleologus smiled a confident smile and sent his army into battle. The imperial forces were completely victorious. Then, just for good measure, John marched into Epirus and captured the capital, Arta. The victory was complete. Baldwin II of Constantinople was quaking in his boots. It seemed that it was just a matter of time before the city would be taken by the Nicaeans. In 1260, Michael sent some troops to shake their swords at the Latins and make them quake a bit. They went away after a while, but it had worked. The Latins sat in the great city and worried about what would happen to them. Meanwhile, Michael formed an alliance with the Genoese in order to have access to some ships. A year passed before Michael was ready to have another go. In June 1261, he sent his Caesar, Alexius Strategopolis, to see how well Constantinople was defended. The Caesar sent off with 800 men to have a look around. When he arrived, he spent some time tatting to local farmers. They gave him some very interesting news. It seems that someone had told the Latins that there was some trouble in the island of Daphnusia in the Bosphorus. The whole of the Latin garrison was away attacking the island, and the city was undefended. The farmers also told Alexius there was a gate in the land walls that his men could probably go through without too much trouble. Alexius Strategopolis could not believe his luck. Early in the morning of July 25th, 1261, He and a few of his best men slipped into the city. They encountered a few lazy and unsuspecting guards who didn't put up too much resistance. The guards were marched up to the top of the Theodosian walls and thrown off the ramparts. The main gates of Constantinople were opened and the rest of Alexius's men streamed in. Baldwin and some of the Latins fled on Venetian ships. The rest hid in churches. They needn't have been afraid though. There was no massacre. 
the Latins were allowed to leave and Constantinople was imperial hands once more. Michael VIII was 200 miles away when he heard the news. He showed all the signs of being amazed and not able to believe it, but he was handed Baldwin's imperial regalia. Some people think, though, that Michael was not surprised at all. Some people think Michael was not amazed in any way. Some people think that it was Michael Paleologus who had stirred up the trouble on Daphnusia in the first place. Three weeks later, on the 15th of August, the Emperor Michael VIII entered the city of Constantinople. It was not a triumphant entry. The Emperor walked into the city through the Golden Gate and walked down the Mies behind an icon of the Virgin Mary. The city was a wreck, a shadow of its once beautiful self. Everything was in ruins. Houses, churches and palaces had been stripped of their glory and left to decay. To Michael Paleologus, though, it was still glorious. It was his capital. It was the centre of his empire, and at last it was his. Michael had heard tales of the magnificence of Constantinople, but he had never seen it. We must remember that it had been in Latin hands for 57 years, and Michael was only 37. Constantinople may have been his capital, but he had never set foot in the place before that day in August 1261. Now he was in control of the great city, Michael Paleologus realised what a task was ahead of him. It was now time to start juggling the balls. The first thing to do was rebuild the city. There was not much money in the treasury, as, as there had been in better years, but there was enough to restore Constantinople. Michael had a wonderful mosaic of Jesus, Mary and John the Baptist created for the Hagia Sophia and many other churches were rebuilt. Houses were built and people were encouraged to come to the capital and live. The great city had once had a population of 800,000. By the time Michael restored it to the empire, just 35,000 people were left. By the end of his reign, there were 70,000. The walls and defences were also rebuilt and a massive iron chain was strung across the harbour so that no invading ships could reach the city. Then, to show it was a new start for the empire, Michael created a new flag with an emblem of two eagles, one for Constantinople and one for Nicaea. This emblem is still seen in flags of some of the modern nations of the Balkans. The juggling began properly when Pope Urban III declared he was launching a crusade to take Constantinople back for the Latins. Michael tried to make peace with the Pope, but Urban wasn't interested. Fortunately, the crusade didn't get much support and Michael was able to start recapturing parts of Greece still held by the Latins. Michael allied with the Genoese, giving them the Galata colony, but their fleet was defeated by the Venetians. The Genoese then allied with King Manfred of Sicily and Michael juggled again. The Genoese were banished from Constantinople. Michael was now out of friends and the balls in the air were looking dodgy. He looked further afield and tried to enlist the help of King Louis IX of France. Louis was organising a new crusade to the Holy Land and wasn't interested, so Michael juggled again and decided to appeal to the one person who nobody would have thought he would appeal to. And who was this? Well, it was none other than the Pope. The Pope had been preaching a crusade against the Empire a couple of years before and now Michael was hoping to get his help. Surely there was no chance of this. But there was a chance. Michael began to hint he would unite the Orthodox Church with the Church of Rome. He even offered to join a crusade to the Holy Land. Michael knew that Urban couldn't stand Manfred of Sicily and that an alliance with the Empire might give him a chance to get rid of the Norman king. This was an offer that Urban couldn't refuse. He wrote back to the Basileus calling him Paleologus Illustrious Emperor of the Greeks. Negotiations began, but before any agreement could be reached, Pope Urban died on the 2nd of October 1264. Before he died, though, the Pope brought into our story a man who was to come close to destroying everything that Michael Paleologus was building. Urban was determined to get rid of Manfred of Sicily, and he found a way of doing it. 
he invited the younger brother of King Louis IX of France to invade the Kingdom of Sicily. Charles of Anjou was a thoroughly unpleasant man. He was jealous of his older brother and wanted a kingdom for himself, so he was only too happy to answer the Pope's call. He marched into Italy with 30,000 knights and crushed Manfred in battle. Manfred was killed, as were his wife and young children, and Charles of Anjou was crowned King of Sicily. Manfred's cousin, Conradin, came down from Germany to challenge Charles, but his army was destroyed. Poor Conradin was beheaded in the market square in Naples. He was only 16 years old. Charles planned to expand his kingdom. He got a lucky break when he was visited by Baldwin II. The rather rubbish former Emperor of Constantinople offered to give Charles the Peloponnese if Charles would help him regain his lost throne. Charles gleefully agreed and began to tax his people heavily to prepare for an invasion. He allied himself with the Venetians, took a strip of land in Epirus and got ready for some conquering. Pope Clement IV gave his agreement. Pope Clement IV, though, made the rather bad mistake of dying before any invasion was possible. This may sound like a good thing for the Empire, but it wasn't. Even an unfriendly Pope was better than no Pope at all, and for the next three years, there was no Pope at all. Charles of Anjou was so powerful that he was able to block the election of a new Pope. During 1268 and 1269, he built up the strength of his armed forces and prepared for his attack on the Empire, without the inconvenience of having to get permission from the leader of the Catholic Church. He made friends with King Bela IV of Hungary, Stephen Urosh of Serbia and the brilliantly named Constantine Tich of Bulgaria. He sent envoys to the Seljuks, the King of Armenia and the Mongol Khan. Charles of Anjou was strong, had powerful friends and was leaving nothing to chance. It was not looking good for Michael Paleologus. Despite the threat from Sicily, the great juggler managed to keep the balls in the air. He didn't really trust the Genoese, so amazingly he did a deal with the Venetians. This was not enough though, so Michael contacted the only person who he thought might be able to stop Charles of Anjou in his tracts. He appealed to the King of France. Cleverly, the Emperor offered to join the crusade against the Saracens. I would be glad to join the campaign, he said, but my empire is about to be attacked by your little brother. Maybe you can help me out. He hinted, as he often hinted, that he would submit the Orthodox Church to the rule of the Roman Catholic Church. Louis IX must have done something, but we are not quite sure what. Whatever it was, though, it must have been good. Louis persuaded his brother to join the crusade and set off for Sicily, ready to sail to Tunis in North Africa. Unfortunately, the French king rather inconveniently died before the ships could sail. Charles was free to attack the empire, but he chose to carry on the crusade. Something Louis said must have got to Charles, because before he set off for Tunis, he inflicted a heavy defeat on the emir. Surely now Charles of Anjou was free to smash the empire. His mighty army and navy scored a great victory and the morale was high. The Angevins soon arrived back in Sicily. Only a miracle could save Michael and his empire now. And then there was a miracle. The coast of Sicily was struck by one of the worst storms ever to hit that part of the Mediterranean. All 18 of Charles's massive warships and many, many smaller boats were smashed to smithereens. Thousands of soldiers and horses still aboard the ships were pitched into the sea and drowned. In less than a day, the whole Angevin navy and most of the army were destroyed. Back in Constantinople, Michael Paleologus wept with joy when he heard the news. Michael knew, though, that Charles would be back and he needed to find a way of making sure he didn't get too powerful or make too many more friends. Michael juggled again. By 1271 there was a new Pope, Gregory X. In 1272, the Pope had written to Michael declaring he wanted to heal the division between the two churches. 
Michael had been hinting at this for years, but he knew the people of the Empire would not be happy if the Catholic Pope was made more important than the Patriarch of Constantinople. Michael juggled again. He got the Pope to stop Charles of Anjou planning any more invasions and even managed to put off the decision about the church for a couple of years. Sadly, by 1274, Gregory X had run out of patience. He demanded that Michael sign the Document of Union or face the consequences. Michael Paleologus knew that the consequences probably involved a full-scale invasion by the Angevins and so in late 1274 he signed. He managed to get the Pope to agree that the Orthodox traditions of worship could carry on but the Orthodox Church was now ruled by the Catholic Church. When we look back, we can understand why the Emperor had to make this decision. If he had done anything else, the Empire may have been lost. The people of the Empire, though, didn't see it that way. Michael Paleologus was never popular after this time. Even his son Andronicus was against him. The Empire was saved, however. Gregory X forced Charles to agree to a year's truce with Michael, giving the Emperor the chance to conquer a bit more lost territory in the Balkans. Gregory X then turned his mind to what he really wanted. He promised a new crusade to the Holy Land to be led by Charles of Anjou and Michael Paleologus. Good old Michael juggled once more. Amazingly, he suggested that the crusade should follow the route of the First Crusade. Yep, he suggested the army should travel via Constantinople and the Bosphorus and go through Asia Minor. He decided he could do what his great-great-great-great-grandfather, Alexius Comnenus, had done and use the Crusaders to help regain imperial territory in Anatolia. Unfortunately, he never got the chance. Because, on the 10th of January 1276, Pope Gregory X rather inconveniently died. He was succeeded by Innocent V, so Michael had to start negotiations again. After a reign of five months, Pope Innocent V rather inconveniently died. He was succeeded by Adrian V, so Michael had to start negotiations again, again. After a reign of five weeks, Pope Adrian V rather inconveniently died. He was succeeded by John XXI, so Michael had to begin negotiations yet again. After a reign of seven months, Pope John XXI rather inconveniently died when the roof of his new study fell on him. He was succeeded by Nicholas III, so Michael had to begin negotiations once more. Nicholas lasted a lot longer. He was both good and bad for the Empire. He forced Charles of Anjou into another truce with Michael, but he was much more demanding about the unification of the churches. The Orthodox Church had had enough. Although Michael tried to persuade them to accept the Union, there was rebellion in the Hagia Sophia. Michael, though, captured a bit more land in Thessaly and most, most of Bulgarian Thrace from the Bulgars. In 1280, Pope Nicholas III rather inconveniently died, he was succeeded by Martin IV, so Michael had to begin negotiations again, yet again, again. Pope Martin IV, though, was made of different stuff. He began to get more and more fed up and cross with the Empire and its Emperor. Charles of Anjou was delighted. Now there was no annoying Pope forcing him to agree treaties. There was a handy angry Pope who was very unhappy with Michael Paleologus. Charles used the Pope's anger and allied himself with the despot of Epirus, who was also unhappy with the unification of the churches. The Angevins attacked, but were defeated by Michael's forces in Albania. Charles, of course, was not beaten for long. In 1281, he was delighted when the Pope, in a fit of annoyance, made an amazing speech. We declare, announced the Pope, that Michael Paleologus, who is called Emperor of the Greeks, has incurred excommunication as a supporter of Greek heretics. Yep. Pope Nicholas III excommunicated Michael and his whole empire. Michael Paleologus was furious. 
he had done his best to make peace with the Church of Rome and support the Union. He had become unpopular with his own people as a result, and now the Pope was excommunicating him anyway. Michael had taken an oath, though, so he didn't cancel the Union. Charles of Anjou was delighted and planned his next moves. He now had treaties with the Pope, Serbia, Bulgaria, Epirus and those pesky Venetians. He was also the most powerful king in Europe, with territory in Sicily, France, Italy, Spain and the Balkans. He imposed horrible taxes on his people and prepared for war. But the war never happened. The people of Sicily, who had never liked him, rose up in revolt. Screams of death to the Franks were heard all over the island. Soon not a Frenchman was left alive in the city of Palermo. The Angevin fleet was burned in its harbour. Charles was furious and laid siege to the rebels in the city of Messina. On the 30th of August 1282, Peter of Aragon landed in Sicily and was proclaimed King of Sicily. Two weeks later, his army marched over to the Angevin camp. Charles of Anjou fled to the Italian mainland and Peter of Aragon triumphantly entered Messina. The empire was saved. Charles of Anjou was in no position to invade now his home island was in the hands of Aragon. Michael Paleologus was clearly a lucky man, wasn't he? His greatest enemy had been defeated by his own subjects, helped by a man from Aragon in faraway Spain. How lucky can you get? But it wasn't luck. Michael VIII had been paying Peter for two years to spread revolt in Sicily, and the invasion of the island had been carefully planned. Michael had juggled the balls one more time and defeated the strongest king in Europe without shredding a drop of imperial blood. Charles of Anjou never caused the empire serious trouble again and died in 1285. Michael Paleologus, though, never had the satisfaction of seeing his great enemy dead. After defeating John of Thessaly, with the help of the Mongol Khan, he fell ill. He travelled back towards the capital, but only got as far as a small village in Thrace called Pacomis. Michael VIII, Michael Paleologus, died in bed on the 11th of December 1282. He was 59 years old and had been emperor for 24 years. He was one of the cleverest and greatest men who ever sat on the throne. He had juggled the balls successfully against the odds and restored the empire to a powerful position. He never recovered all the territory lost by the Angeli. There were small Greek kingdoms in Epirus and Thessaly and the Latins still held small parts of Greece. There was, though, an empire again, and there would be an empire, which gradually got smaller and smaller for another 170 years. Sadly, never again would the empire be great, and never again would it be led by a truly great emperor. Next time, we'll start the decline. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.